Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends, and welcome to a very special edition of the Bill Press Pod, where we combine our two favorite things in life, politics and food. Yes, we do that also with the help of Alex Prudhomme, the great nephew of Julia Child, who co-authored with the great Julia her last book, My Life in France. Now, Alex is out with his own latest book, a fascinating and fun look at food and politics through the prism of the White House. It's called Dinner with the President. From George Washington through Donald Trump, Alex takes us into the kitchen and the dining rooms of almost all the presidents whose palates are as different as their politics. But as Alex points out, what's important is not just what they like to eat, from squirrel stew to cottage cheese to Texas barbecue. What's important is how what's served at the White House can actually set a trend for the entire country and inspire us to eat healthy or not so much. Alex Prudhomme joins us today for a rare romp through the White House kitchen. Alex Prudhomme, good to have you with us and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. Uh, congratulations on the book, Dinner with the President, Food, Politics, and the History of Breaking Bread at the White House. Uh, wonderful read, wonderful book, lots of great stories uh, about the palates of our presidents, Alex. Now, I don't want to dump on the whole purpose of the book, but my first question is, like, who cares? I mean, why is what presidents eat important? Because the White House is the most powerful house in the world. And people forget that not only is it the locus of the U.S. government, but it is also a functioning home. Um, and therefore, uh, the food that is served there is uh, arguably some of the most important of the world. And there are food-related events going on there every day, uh, from a you know simple picnic on the on the great lawn to the uh, state dinners to uh, the the meals that the first family have up in the private quarters, and all of these things uh, are important. They send messages out to various constituencies, and uh, the public pays attention. Um, you know, when the president eats healthy food, a lot of the public starts doing that. And when the president eats less healthy food, they feel like they have license to do that too. So, yeah, I mean, you say up front, uh, and I hadn't thought of it this way. I've spent a lot of time around the White House as a reporter and uh, often as a guest, but the White House runs on food, really. Right. It's it's a very much all of our homes do. Yeah, it's true. Uh, You know, it's true. But even more so there to the to the 10th power, it's, um, you know, they're constantly teas and cocktail parties and dinners and breakfasts and cabinet lunches. And, you know, there's um, uh, the first time I visited, I got taken to lunch at the Navy mess down on the on the ground floor right next to the Situation Room. Mm -hmm. And it must be the most unusual cafeteria in the world, Uh, you know. Bill Clinton liked to go by and get some 
uh, take away breakfast from there. But you, you're sitting in there with generals and and uh, congressmen and uh, cabinet members, and it's it's kind of a fabulous place, and it's all decorated like a um, presidential yacht, uh, which those yachts no longer exist, but the Navy crew um, staffs the Navy mess. Um, and, um, you know, the food is pretty darn good, but it's it's right there in the ground floor of the White House. Have president? you said something a little earlier, have presidents made a point of trying to eat healthy so that Americans do eat healthy or will eat healthier? I think you have to take it administration by administration. Um, someone like Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, they made a big point of eating healthily. Um, Hillary Clinton did. Bill, not so much, although he came around <laughs> in the end. Um, and someone like Donald Trump uh, proudly does not eat healthily. He eats a lot of fast food and, and steak. So um, it really depends on the administration. It's hard to make generalizations. Right. But Michelle Obama, you mentioned, uh, she did have the White House garden, right, which provided a lot of vegetables for the for the White House. Um, I believe it was the Clintons that had a rooftop garden, thanks That's to right. Alice Water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did any presidents have animals that they raised for food? Well, you know, the, the funny thing about the Obama garden is that people sort of saw this as a radical act. But when you go back in time, it was a very traditional thing at the White House to have a garden plot and animals. Um, my favorite story is that, uh, a couple of administrations, they kept a cow in the white house to provide <laughs> fresh milk. Um, uh, later they moved the cow out to her own barn. I think the Tafts were the last one to have a cow. Um, but, uh, Calvin Coolidge kept a chicken coop out back. Um, uh-huh. but he, his chickens tasted like mint and they discovered they had built the coop on top of Teddy Roosevelt's mint patch, which he had planted for his mint juleps. So, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of these guys uh, grew up on farms, and uh, they, they liked having their uh, vegetables and animals around. Well, what I didn't realize until I read your book is that while some, administra- some first ladies and presidents uh, have tried to assert, you know, or establish that, we should we could eat healthier and should as Americans. They got a lot of pushback from the food industry, right? I mean, big food is pretty powerful. Very much so. It's a huge business, and and as we discovered uh, during COVID, uh, there's been a lot of consolidation in the business, so that only a few of the big players are really controlling most of the food supply. And they were threatened uh, in some way by the Obama Garden. They felt that. Uh, they called it an organic garden, which it was not. There's a very specific uh, set of rules you have to follow to be called organic. They just called it a vegetable garden, the White House vegetable garden, or the kitchen garden. And um, you know the, the the vegetables grown there um, were used by the Obamas uh, or given to soup kitchens, uh, sometimes served to guests, and it was really a teaching tool for people. Um, and it was, uh, it was too bad that there was so much pushback against fresh, uh, vegetables because, uh, we do have an obesity crisis in this country and, and they were trying to address that. I want to be careful here. I'm not trying to say that the role of the woman of the house is in the kitchen, but at the same time, didn't the first ladies have a lot to do with running the house and running the kitchen? Absolutely. Uh, it's not a paid job to be the first lady, but it really is a job and it can be all consuming. Um, some women love the role of first lady and others didn't. Um, I think the first kind of proto-modern first lady uh, was Dolly Madison, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, her husband, James, uh, was a Virginia planter who was interested in politics, not in food. But Dolly understood the political value of food, and she would host these uh, raucous Wednesday night parties um, called Mrs. Madison's Squeezes because you had to <laughs> squeeze it into the room. They were so popular. And um, if you were not invited, that was considered a real diss, and you, uh, you were on the outs. And this was an era when Washington, D.C. was a real kind of backwater. And there were these congressmen from all over the place who, you know, usually were kind of lonely bachelors. And and so these squeezes became very important. Um, She took food seriously. Um, Then you have someone like uh, Bess Truman, hated being first lady. She would Mm. run off to Missouri every chance she got. But she was a very um, astute political analyst and and really helped Harry uh, behind the scenes. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, had very mixed feelings about being first lady, but during the second world war, she understood the bully pulpit she had. And so she, uh, promoted victory gardens and, uh, eating economically using food stamps. And she used the white house kitchen as a kind of a demonstration platform about mm-hmm. how to eat, uh, sensibly, uh, and to sort of set an example. Uh, and then you have someone like uh, Jackie Kennedy, who um, raised the bar uh, uh, culinarily. Uh, she uh, based her entertaining uh, at the White House on Louis XIV, the Sun King, um, who intentionally used food in a diplomatic way. And uh, so she did the same. And she used food to lure the best and brightest to the White House and made it kind of the the it place to be. Um and through that, um, furthered her uh, husband's agenda in, in, in remarkable ways. And there's a couple of famous parties that they people still talk about. Um, mm-hmm. And um, they, they, she really intentionally used food to kind of seduce people, um, uh, to come along with her husband's platform, um, to get diplomats on board, uh, broker deals, uh, and essentially keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Right. Uh, which gets to the state dinners I want to talk to you about in just a little bit. But first, just a very practical question. Who does the shopping for the groceries? Well, that is a very, I, I got really into that question and I had a hard time finding out. And that's yeah. my purpose. Um, you know, in the old days, people all across the country used to send foods to the White House for the president uh-huh. to try. You know, whether it was your your grape jelly that you made or a giant piece of cheese or the, the, pre, the famous presidential salmon that was sent from Maine every spring, uh, hearkening the beginning of spring. Um, and uh, the, slowly those things have fallen by the wayside, but particularly because of September 11th. Um, now anything that's sent to the White House is destroyed. Uh, similarly, uh, it used to be that um, the, the White House would send a truck out and they would just go shopping. And, and nowadays, it's all very secretive. They have certain vendors that they use for the government, quote unquote. So the mm. vendors don't know which branch of government their, their produce is going to. And um, they are kept very quiet. If anybody starts blabbing, they're immediately cut from the list. Um, it's very, very, it's almost impossible to poison the president at this point. Wow. So it's not unlike England where they have, you know, like the butcher to the queen, right? Or the, uh, no, the- no, they dissuade people from that. Uh, they, you know, and if you start trying to promote yourself, goodbye. Uh- <laughs> uh-huh. Well, of the many, many, uh, 
historic dinners at the White House. You talk about uh, a few I, I wanted to visit with you about. And the first is where you open up. Maybe this wasn't at the White House itself, but in terms of breaking bread at the table for a purpose of achieving a big diplomatic breakthrough, breakthrough. We start with what you call the dinner table bargain that Thomas Jefferson hosted. Tell us about it. Yeah. Well, this was uh, a point where very beginning of the country, when when uh, George Washington had been in office as president for only a year, uh, Thomas Jefferson had, was his secretary of state. Um, and the nation was uh, riven by battles, political battles, because the democracy wasn't really up and functioning yet. It was kind of an idea more than a reality. And um, you had a battle between Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury, and James Madison, who was a Virginia congressman, uh, representing sort of North and South. And uh, the two issues uh, under debate were, number one, how do we repay our Revolutionary War debts, i.e., how do we construct uh, a tax system and a U.S. financial system? And number two, uh, where to build the federal capital? Uh, the temporary capital was in New York, uh, and so they were all in New York at that point. And um, uh, their debate had gotten so poisonous that Jefferson was worried that it was going to destroy the young republic. And so he did what he uh, had learned that the French kings do when he was ambassador to Paris, which is he invited the combatants over for dinner to his little house on Maiden Lane, which is now in Greenwich Village. And um, he uh, served this sumptuous meal that was cooked by his slave chef, James Hemings, who had been trained uh, under uh, some of the best cooks in Paris, uh, could speak French, uh, was a wonderful cook. Um, and he put on this dinner um, uh, for these two guys. Um, uh, it began with a, a salad with a, a famous Jeffersonian uh, dressing. Uh, it, it moved on to capon that had been stuffed with uh, chestnut puree, uh, mm. and then a, um, a braised beef dish. Uh, all of this served with fabulous wines that he'd brought back from uh, Europe. Um, and then the piece de resistance was the dessert, uh, which was kind of a mind-blowing thing. It was cold vanilla ice cream encased Ooh. in a warm puff pastry. Uh, and this is something that Americans never thought of before, or even you know, never tasted for sure. Uh, and, and Jefferson reserved this for very special occasions, and this was one. Um, and he served that with a very special champagne. And so um, he kept the conversation light during dinner. And then afterwards, after over snifters of brandy, mm -hmm. they got down to the political horse trading. And lo and behold, the, the wonderful food and, and wine and conversation had mellowed these two guys who, who couldn't even speak to each other. Uh, and they began to actually um, make a deal. And they both compromised. Um, Hamilton was allowed to impose taxes and construct a financial system. And in return, Madison was given a nominally Southern site for the federal capital, uh, mm -hmm. which is current day Washington, DC. Uh, and it, it was all in secret. Um, but when it was finally uh, exposed, it was, it was known as the dinner table bargain. And it was arguably this one dinner saved the Republic. <laughs> uh, Amazing. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And there's and there's some current um, echoes of this. I mean, we're still fighting over taxation and, and the role of the federal government. And some people still don't like Washington, D.C. as the capital. Um, yeah. And uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, uh, Hamilton musical, there's a there's a whole rap song about this event. It's called uh, The Room Where It Happened. It was one of the it's the most oh, yeah. yeah. songs in that show. And it's rapped by uh, Aaron Burr who was not invited and was green with envy that he wasn't there. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's kind of one of those moments where there's so much coming together all in one room. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall there. Too bad that Jefferson didn't host a dinner with Hamilton and Burr. Things might have turned out differently, too. Oh, boy. Can you imagine? Uh, I know. I know. So uh, the the major uh, food events at the White House, as you indicated earlier, are the state dinners. Uh, if I um, pull correctly from your book, the first state dinner with Ulysses Grant for the King of Hawaii, yeah. first formal state dinner. Yeah. This wasn't just inviting a friend over for dinner. There was a real diplomatic purpose behind this, wasn't there? Well, and economic. Uh, huh. The backstory is that uh, Hawaii at that point was called the Sandwich Islands, and they were their own independent kingdom run by the Merry Monarch, King Kalakaua, a big roly-poly guy who loved to eat. Um, but we had uh, the, the United States had very high tariffs on imported sugar, and Kalakaua desperately needed some income to keep his kingdom going. And so he came to Washington um, essentially on bended knee and asked Ulysses S. Grant um, to please lower the tariffs so that he could start exporting sugar to the states. And Grant thought this was a good idea. Uh, and in return, uh, the U.S. was given access to Pearl Harbor, which is a crucial naval base. And mm. um, some of the uh, Hawaiians were worried that this was the beginning of the end of their kingdom, and they were proven right eventually. Right. Um, and uh, Kalakaua was feted uh, in Washington. There was a big parade and then the state dinner. Uh, he was the first foreign dignitary to be hosted like this. Um, and there was a chef named Valentino Mela, who was a Sicilian and known as the professor because he was such an adept cook and knew so much about culinary history. And uh, sadly, the menu doesn't exist any longer, but we can infer from uh, his previous dinners that there must have been 30 to 35 courses oh. uh, paired with delicious wines. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the descriptions of his food go on and on are very flowery. It sounds amazing. Uh, and, and lo and behold, it was a, a very successful event. And, and, you know, the, the, the rough and tumble grants from Missouri, uh, uh, had come to like the, the trappings of, of power in Washington had come to like good food. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and they set the, uh, template for, uh, modern day state dinners that still more or less exists along the way they, they set it up. So if you go to France for a state dinner, right, it's going to be Louis XIV, right? If you go to China, it's going to be, I mean, we've talked, we'll talk probably about Richard Nixon, uh, mm prepping for this big state dinner in China. But in the, at the White House, is there such a thing as an American cuisine? I mean, do we have an American cuisine that you know is going to be served at the White House? Well, it's interesting. So a state dinner will often have 
uh, a nod to the guest country, uh, whether it's an ingredient or a wine, you know, say uh, uh-huh. uh, when Gorbachev came over, uh, the Reagan served him wine from the Russian River Valley, which is excellent wines. Um, or uh, when Macron comes, uh, he's often served um, a French, a French Franco-American dish or a, a wine that's made by a French winemaker, but in California, something like yeah, that. Yeah. So that's sort of the foreground. And the background is that there really is a distinct American cuisine, and it goes back to Jefferson and his slave chef, James Hemings. Um, you know, those days, uh, they were cooking over open fire. They used uh, largely uh, British recipes, but French technique, um, indigenous American ingredients like venison and turkey and corn and so on. Um and uh, then the slaves uh, owned spices and herbs and, and their a soupçon of their own uh, inspiration. Um, and so uh, the two of them, uh, Jefferson um, and Hemings, had a wonderful combination. He, Jefferson had the, the vision and he had the money and the wherewithal to, to produce these meals. But he- James Hemings was the one who actually did the work in the kitchen and uh, had been trained in Paris. And so the two of them uh, created this kind of fusion cuisine that was first known as Virginia cooking and then later became known as Jeffersonian food. But really, it is uh, the basis for what we now think of as, quote unquote, American cooking, um, Mm -hmm. still informing us all these years later. Um, and it's just fascinating because it's, it's this melange, it's this, it's right. this um, fusion of global cuisine. Uh, it's worth pointing out, too, that James Hemings was a slave. Uh, and despite um, all his gifts and his contributions to the White House, uh, Jefferson never freed him either. That's re- well, no, that's not true. Uh, oh, I, actually, I'm sorry. Go ahead. James yeah. Hemings, uh, interestingly enough, when he was in Paris... Uh, ah, yeah. uh, he was earning money, uh, because slavery was not, uh, legal at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he accumulated quite a bit. And then when they came back, uh, after the French revolution to the States, uh, Jefferson continued to pay him and Hemings ultimately bought his freedom. Um, and when Jefferson was in the white house, he offered the executive chef job to Hemings, but they couldn't agree on financial terms. Um, and then there was a sort of a tragic ending. Uh, Hemings uh, traveled the world a bit and then um, moved to Baltimore and began to cook at a tavern where he also began to drink and drink and drink. Mm. And sadly, he uh, essentially uh, committed suicide in his uh, mid-30s. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's poignant because here's a guy who was ahead of his time. Right. Uh, he could speak French. He, he could write and read, which was unusual for a slave. Uh, he was this wonderful cook. Um, his sexuality may have been fluid, so he just simply didn't fit his era. And he was miserable um, mm-hmm. and uh, neither fully black nor white. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it's understandable and tragic, but I think uh, it would make a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, one other dinner I want to mention before we take a break, and that is October the 16th, 1901 a dinner that Teddy Roosevelt hosted at the White House, uh, which uh, made history and good to talk about this month of Black History Month, too. Yes. 
To set the scene, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, was not elected. He inherited his presidency after, I think it was McKinley was shot. So he uh, was a foodie. He ate to great excess, actually. One of the, the very first people he had over was a guy named Booker T. Washington, who was a black academic, um, the first uh, leader of the Tuskegee Institute and uh, a really well-respected man. But the problem is that, that no president had had a black man sit at his dining table as a putative equal um, before. And this simple dinner, uh, 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 there was another guest, it was the three of them, very simple. It was just mentioned in the, in the papers, the three names. It caused a huge uproar and, and all sorts of horrible vitriol uh, 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 about how... Um, you know, uh, black people should not be allowed in the White House and so on. And uh, although it phrased much more harshly than that. And um, and, and and Roosevelt was taken aback. He, he really respected uh, Washington and and uh, relied on him for advice. And um, and yet even his advisors said that it was a political mistake for him at the time. And and he never repeated it, but he didn't regret it. So it was a very interesting moment. Well, you can tell a lot about the president uh, as to what they eat and what they preferred or what they ordered, what they favored. Uh, let's get into that with a few of the presidents you talk about, Alex, after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod, uh, and then we'll be right back. And for today's podcast, very fittingly, we're talking about food. Uh, I want to remind you about the great work of the World Central Kitchen. Uh, under the great Jose Andres. They are everywhere in the world where people need help serving hot meals. Over 1 million hot meals served so far post-earthquake in Turkey and Syria, and every day still on the ground in Ukraine and in Poland, serving hundreds of, th of thousands of hot meals every day for the refugees there from the war in Ukraine. The World Central Kitchen doing great work, and they do it with our help. So please go to the website, World Central Kitchen. It's wck.org, wck.org. And join me in sending whatever help you can. The World Central Kitchen, wck.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. 
Figure Lending LLC DBA Figure. Equal Opportunity Lender. NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We're back with today's podcast. Our guest, Alex Prudhomme, uh, he is the uh, co-author with Julia Child of My Life in France and now author of his great new book, Dinner with the President. Uh, all right. So, Alex, you know what they say? You are what you eat. <laughs> uh, so we've talked about Thomas Jefferson. But just a, just one final point on Thomas Jefferson. He was the real only I've heard you say epicure among all the presidents, right? I mean, he really knew food. He really knew wines and he really appreciated their value and their power, didn't he? More than anybody else. He did. Yeah. He, let's not forget that he was a slaveholder and he had this wonderful plantation, Monticello, which I recommend everybody visit, uh, because, um, uh, and so he grew up, uh, he was a natural gourmet. He understood food. He understood the value of the political value of food. He had been the ambassador to Paris. He'd seen how the, the French Kings use food as a way of bringing people together. And he emulated that. And so, uh, he was one of these guys who really understood the diplomatic and political utility. Um, many presidents don't understand that. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, probably the majority don't understand that, which is too bad because it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. Um, and my, my pet theory is that those who understand the, the political value of food end up being better presidents. I was surprised to learn from your book that the, maybe the one president who enjoyed cooking the most and did, in fact, uh, cook himself the most was Dwight Eisenhower. That's right. I know. I was very surprised to learn that. And, you know, I kind of thought of Eisenhower as America's dad, this kind of square shaped black and white guy. Well, uh, doing my research, he, was, he became a technicolor kind of mad genius <laughs> to me. He, yeah. was, he was raised on a farm, uh, learned to hunt and fish and cook from an illiterate woodsman, uh, provided for his family uh, in the military. He kept his troops very well fed, which was one reason they did well at D-Day. Um, after the war, he was the president of Columbia University, and he made headlines by uh, publishing his recipe for two-day vegetable soup, which is <laughs> a fabulous creation that I've made. I recommend it. Uh, and then as president, um, he was known as the president who cooks, and he would go up to the roof of the White House and grill steak, or he would uh, grill corn on the cob in the in the cob, um, in the husk. Um and uh, he just loved it, and, and, and to the point where he would force his food on the on journalists who uh, had already eaten uh, because he was so proud of whatever he had made. Uh, so I was uh, I was very charmed by uh, learning about Eisenhower. Yeah, uh, I wasn't so attracted to his uh, squirrel squirrel stew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he and James Garfield were known for eating squirrel stew, and probably Abe Lincoln too. You know, anybody who kind of grew up in the in the rural uh, uh, West. Uh, had that kind of thing. So for LBJ and then for the Bushes, it was Texas barbecue, White House style. Yeah, for sure. Uh, barbecue was a big deal for LBJ. Um, it was a, it was the kind of food that had not really been served in the White House too much before him, and he really used it to his advantage. He would he would fly people, particularly European leaders, out to his ranch uh, in Central Texas, and um, he would. Uh, take them on a nice horseback ride to loosen them up. Then he'd um, feed them some ribs, 
uh, or chili, maybe a couple of beers and some some whiskey. And then he'd move in for the kill. He'd say, now uh, you do me a favor. <laughs> so uh, he used it. He used his barbecue very truly, shrewdly. Yeah. He used it on the campaign trail, too. He would have big barbecues wherever he went, including here in New York City. Now, not one uh, whose um, taste in food I <laughs> am tempted to follow is Richard Nixon. You point out that he basically had one thing for lunch every day. Yes, it was a sad lunch, uh, and there's a photograph of it in the book. Uh, it was a little dollop of cottage cheese on a pineapple ring. Sometimes he would dress it up with a little ketchup. Uh, and God. Gerald Ford also had that same lunch, but not every day Whoa. like Nixon did. Uh, and I find it fascinating. It tells you something about him as a person. Uh, yeah. Food can be unintentionally revealing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think he just liked the sameness and the safety of it. Again, you are what you eat. I think of that, particularly cottage, yeah. cottage cheese and pineapple is bad enough, but with ketchup? Oh, move on. And then <laughs> Bill Clinton. We remember Bill Clinton maybe most because of the Saturday Night Live sketches of his going into the a neighborhood McDonald's and eating everybody else's French fries. Um, he loved fast food, didn't he? He, he sure did, uh, notoriously. I mean, I, you remember those images of him, of him on the campaign trail snarfing oh, down yeah. donuts. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I know that SNL thing was hilarious. Uh, I, of course, I had to rewatch it when I was writing the book. Um, and, uh, you know, Phil Hartman playing him. Um it was uh, not too far from the truth. You know, he was uh, in, uh, he grew up um, with a kind of a broken family. And he, I think he overcompensated by eating a lot of rich, uh, not particularly healthy foods. Um, but, you know, he had a bad heart and Hillary was very uh, health conscious. And so she hired a chef called Walter Scheib. Who right. Came in, and his remit was to produce healthy modern fusion cooking. It was a new kind of food for the White House. And it was really a new menu for a new era. Uh, you know, we're entering uh, this whole new millennium. And um, it was quite impactful uh, on the public. It was a, it was a way of uh, educating people and um, about healthy eating and, and in particular the president. And, um, you know, he would invite uh, uh, heart specialists like Dr. Dean Ornish to the White House to advise them on their menus. And slowly but surely, he eased off of the fast food and eased off of the red meat and the pancakes and all of that and, and became healthier and healthier. After he left the White House, he became a vegetarian and then mm -hmm. a vegan. Um, and from what I've heard, he's he's slipped a little bit on that now. He started to uh, eat some fish and chicken and so on, but um, I can hardly blame him. Um, but he has lost a lot of weight, and he's become much healthier, and he survived, which was kind of miraculous. And I remember from those times myself that Alice Waters was a big presence at the White House uh, uh, through mutual friends with Hillary. And I think she's the one that really pushed them to put the garden uh, on the rooftop and to hire uh, a chef who was going to create better food and better policies at the Department of Agriculture and the FDA. Uh, had yeah, a that's impact. absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for those who don't know, Alice Waters is a, uh, a chef uh, who runs a famous restaurant in Berkeley, California called Chez Panisse. But she's also a food policy advocate um, and gadfly. And she has long pestered the White House to, to 
mm-hmm. not only promote its food better, but eat more healthily. And uh, she was a very important um, resource for Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama uh, in, in their in their food endeavors. Uh, and Barack Obama was basically an omnivore, wasn't he? Uh, or he isn't was. he, I should say. Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, people forget that he was partially raised in Hawaii, but he was also raised in Indonesia. His mother yeah. remarried and they moved mm-hmm. over there. And so he had this wonderful global palate. Um, and people may remember when he went to uh, Hanoi in Vietnam with um, oh, Anthony yeah. Bourdain, and they sat down to eat spicy bun cha uh, pork with noodles. Uh, and he was, uh, Obama was very adept with the chopsticks and was not at all afraid of the spice. Um, and it was a great moment. And it was one of those things, um, a little bit like Donald Trump and his burgers, but where the images of Bourdain and, uh, Obama eating bunchad in Hanoi together went viral around the world and, and caused a sensation and really kind of became some of the defining images of his presidency. And the meal cost six dollars. <laughs> yeah, six dollars. And and Bourdain <laughs> tweeted, uh, "Well, I picked up the tab." <laughs> Thanks, Tony. <laughs> All right. So we kind of know what they like to eat. Um, what about alcohol? Was alcoholism it? It's it sort of never talked about. But were there presidents who were alcoholics or had a serious problem with alcohol? There were a few. Uh, The most notorious was Ulysses S. Grant. Um, It almost destroyed his military career before the Civil War. Uh, He was a very adept horseman and and a good soldier, but he had a a binge drinking problem that came to light when he was separated from his wife and family for extended periods. And he was not drinking for fun. It was really just sort of this manic energy um, that came out of him. And um, he was cashiered, uh, pushed out of the army, but then the civil war came along ironically and, and resurrected him. And this guy, uh, who'd been pushed out ultimately became the head of the U S army, uh, and then the president of the United States. Um, but he had that demon of alcohol on his shoulder his entire life and really fought a brave battle against it. And, um, you know, with, when you're a president, there's so many temptations all the time and he was resolute in, in trying to resist, Um, And to my knowledge, he didn't fall off the wagon too much at the White House. Um, And, uh, you know, he'd go to temperance meetings and he really was very outspoken about it, um, which was quite Mm. unusual back then and is still unusual. But so he was sort of the worst case scenario. Uh, And finally, uh, you top off your book uh, delightfully with some White House recipes. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I had to do that. Can't talk about all of them, but... um, what, what what are a couple of your favorites? Well, I only have 10 recipes. They're all things that, that the home cook can do. I kept them pretty simple. I have a couple mm-hmm. of drinks recipes. Um, my favorite of the drink recipes is a reverse martini, which was the favorite of FDRs and also of Julia Childs, uh, which is where you reverse the proportion. So you have one part gin to five parts of vermouth. Um, and of the dishes, I think George Washington would do a, a striped bass on a cedar plank on the grill. And it, it sounds hard, but it's not. It's super easy and it's really delicious. Uh, have um, you done it? Have you done oh yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And when I was working on the book, I would have dinner parties and I would serve these dishes and test them out on my friends to make sure that they were uh, easy to make and, and good to eat. And, and sure enough, they were. I, so I have to ask you about that. I've always wondered, do you actually put the wood plank on the on the grill itself? Doesn't it catch fire? 
you do. But the trick is before you do that, you soak the plank in water for a good half an hour or so. Uh-huh. Um, and it does burn a little bit, but not too much. And what it does is it imparts this beautiful cedar flavor to the flesh of the fish. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's a good showstopper. <laughs> I'll bet. Um, and finally, you'd also talk about William Howard Taft's favorite soup, which I have never tried. I've never tried to make it. I've never uh, had it served to me. And that is Billy B. But I've heard people say it's the most beautiful, delicious soup in the world ever. It is. It is gorgeous. And I'm a I'm a muscle lover. We have a place in Maine and we pick mussels off the rocks and eat them fresh and there's nothing better. And this soup caught my fancy. And uh, it doesn't hurt that it has a lot of delicious herbs and a bit of cream in it. Um, and um, the official recipe calls for removing not only the mussel shells, but also the mussel meat. I keep the mussel meat in mine. Um, and it's mm. it's quite uh, straightforward to make and, and really good and, and a beautiful dish to look at. Billy B. So the uh, there's a good backstory, which I tell in the in the uh, recipes about that. Right. It is so much fun and so much to learn. Dinner with the president, Alex Prudhomme. And of course, there'll be a link for you to buy your copy of the book in the episode notes to today's podcast. Uh, Alex, thank you for a wonderful read. Thanks for all the research you did. And thanks for uh, spending some time with us today on the Bill Press Pod. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you so much. And as Julia would say, bon appétit. <laughs> bon appétit. Uh, and that's today's podcast with Alex Prudum. There'll be a link uh, on the episode notes of this podcast for you to get your own copy of Dinner with the President. It's a fun book, a great read. You will really enjoy it. You'll love it as much as I did. Uh, and again, thank you for joining us. Now, we'll be back on Friday with our regular reporters roundtable with all the news of the latest news coming from the week in politics in our nation's capital. Have a great week, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Come back and see us on Friday for Reporters Roundtable, the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. 